Welcome to Bush School in Court. We're doing something a little bit different today. Um, we are coming to you live from Facebook Live on our Facebook page with no announcement. So we are surprising them today. <laughs> but we had a wonderful guest today at the Bush School, the Student Government Association's Diversity and Inclusion Committee, brought us in a, a wonderful guest speaker. And she was kind enough to give us some time after the event to chat with both myself and Kenny Taylor, Professor Kenny Taylor who has been on the podcast before. Now you get to see what we look like here together. I guess they have the website. I guess too. so. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll let Zoe introduce herself. So um, just give us the, if you would, um, just a brief background about, um, about you and how you ended up here with us today. Great. Well, first of all, thank you all for having me here at the um, Bush School. It's been a really exciting time. And it's my first visit at uh, Texas A&M. University and I am impressed. And you got a t-shirt. And I got a t-shirt. Yes. Howdy. So my name is Zilla Fuker and um, I was born in Zimbabwe, Africa. Um, I grew up in London, England and in Birmingham, Alabama. Um, I went on to Alabama State University undergraduate and uh, <clears throat> finished a master's, two master's degrees at Purdue University and spent the first half of my career, uh, I've been working for about 18 years now, um, in corporate America with Motorola, uh, United Technologies Corporation, Carrier, and Honeywell. And then in 2010, I had an opportunity to um, shift gears and go and serve at my alma mater, um, where I was hired on as Chief Development Officer um, and subsequently promoted to be the Vice President of Institutional Advancement. And I was there until 2000, did I say 2010? Yeah, 2010. I was there until 2017. Okay. Um, I took another institutional advancement position at another HBCU. Um, but in the midst of that, I understood or got a chance to learn about this whole student engagement thing. And typically, you don't think of advancement officers focusing on student engagement, but I would say that's my biggest takeaway uh, from that HBCU experience. And um, in 2016, I started getting really active in social media. Mm -hmm. um, I started a PhD program at Alabama State University in Ed Leadership, and I decided to focus my research on social media and student engagement. So it brought two of the things that I was interested in together. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll be finishing my PhD, uh, hopefully this semester. Thanks, that all of this, <laughs> all of things go well. And, um, <laughs> But, but in 16, I also started my own company, Activate Elevate, which is a digital content social media marketing firm, um, basically managing individual organizations, uh, colleges and universities, and nonprofits, social media platforms, building the strategy, in some cases doing the day-to-day, -day, um, actually working with a couple of elected officials uh, right now as well. But then I also um, have a mentor who wrote this book, and the book, Why Not Win, um, Let's give it a full proper sure. Uh, why not win? You can get it on Amazon.com, Barnes and Nobles, and Books a Million. Um, but why not win um, was something that was a great set of lessons that Larry Thornton shares his story. And from that, I recommended that we consider launching a nonprofit, basically a leadership institute. And we did that, and actually started this past this past January at the University of Alabama in Birmingham with our first cohort. And hopefully we'll get a chance to take that to colleges and universities across the country. Um, and that's those are my two things. Uh, I'm married to my college sweetheart, Kwame Fluker, and we have two amazing little roommates, uh, Coleman Fluker and Anderson Fluker. Nice. So I have two questions, and maybe you, you, I'll let you decide which one to answer first. I'm interested in 
you know, have kind of a unique experience, both um, being an immigrant and then working in a variety of different fields. So you've worked in the private sector, you worked for higher ed, mm -hmm. and you're in the midst of doing some nonprofit work as well. So uh, uh, one of the things I'd be interested in is some of the different challenges for, say, our students as they go from here trying to navigate the spaces between private sector companies, nonprofit, and uh, working for a university. Because one of the things we know, uh, at least I think, is those environments aren't exactly the same. <laughs> there are organizations, of course, but they're not exactly the same. And so I would be curious about that. And then I'd also be curious about your dissertation. We've been trying to ramp up our student engagement efforts through social media. That's how we're broadcasting this podcast right now. It's our main source of marketing for our podcast. So any, uh, any free tips um, that we might have on things that students do like or platforms they're using or um, things we could do to better engage our students through social media. Sure, definitely. Yeah, I mean, so let's talk about navigating across mm -hmm. the different spaces. Um, you have to be completely out of your mind. <laughs> uh, and I'm convinced that I'm out of my mind uh, because you literally have to, you can't be married to any ways of doing things, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you think moving from institution to institution there are different ways of doing the same thing. You factor that factor in uh, moving from industry or environment to environment. Um, the private sector, uh, you know, I think tends to be very definitive as to how you enter. I think they're starting to be a little bit more flexible around that now. But it used to be you have to have an MBA or an engineering degree or a finance degree um, to get into the private sector. That's and that that degree usually had to be tied very much to. Uh, whatever that industry or that organization is. Um, but the piece you want to talk more about is the, the movement in between. Um, I spent time in human resources, um, and I studied organizational behavior um, at Purdue University. And what I would say people need to spend time focusing on is the transferable skills okay. um, and being able to apply those skills regardless of the setting. Um, because the truth of the matter is a nonprofit leader um, a CEO of a corporation and an entrepreneur uh, all have pretty much the same daily agenda, right? To save or reduce costs um, for things to happen within a budget and for those things to have a level of impact. And so the fundamentals are the same. Um, what's different is the kind of talent that you bring in uh, as well as the, um, the, the norms, if you may. Uh, and maybe the dress code might be a little bit more flexible or, or a little less flexible. And I think if I were giving someone advice uh, to their around their career, I would say don't limit yourself, um, and that it can be done. Um, I've you know been able to navigate across all three. I would argue effortlessly. Mm -hmm. uh, don't get me wrong. Um, when I was applying to higher ed, I had this very corporate resume, and because I was going into a fundraising job, um, I had to show that I had done some fundraising before, and all the fundraising I'd done was in a board capacity. So I had to modify my resume to highlight the fundraising results in all the boards that I had served on just to give context to my experience versus you know, just kind of having my board experience at the bottom, you know, Boys and Girls Club and so forth. Uh, so you might have to shape yourself a little differently. Um, but in this day and age, there's so many great examples that people can pull um, to make those transitions. I think it was easier going from corporate into higher ed. Um, I've seen people do it the other way and I've seen challenges. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just because of rigor tends to be a little bit more, be mm -hmm. more so on the um, 
and let me be careful with all my higher ed friends out there. I am not in any way, actually to my dissertation committee, I'm in no way saying that it's not rigorous, but it's just the time is a little bit faster there uh, with the annual finance, with the quarterly financial reviews and so forth, because you're dealing with NASDAQ every day saying how you're doing. So it's very different. different. Yeah, yeah, the pace is different. Yes, thank you. <laughs> we still do a lot. <laughs> it is. Uh, I have uh, friends who work in the in the private sector at the executive level, and it's we have good laughs about. Uh, you know, I'll start a project, and I'll and I'll say to them, you know, I might have this funding in six months. We might have a paper in two years, and they're like, "What is wrong with you? Like our deadlines are tomorrow <laughs> and yesterday." We don't think two years out for like an individual project for one person. We have to be adapt and adjust yeah. And, yeah. and I think that's a that's a good highlighting difference between private sector and uh, at least um, uh, universities because they have different missions right the sure. private sector is trying is always fighting competition always trying to increase their profits where yeah. one of the university's functions sort of um, maybe like some government entities is to be there for a while yes right we don't want the president of A&M running around Fighting, taking on every innovative thing if the risk is so high that we might lose the organization. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Whereas in the private sector, now this isn't true of all. You think of larger entities like some of the ones you've worked with, and they probably are a good bit about maintaining as well. Yes, definitely. Uh, but I, I think the pace is one that really uh, we could highlight as being different. What do you think some of those transferable skills are? Just a couple of them. Uh, communications. Um, you know, there's this category of skills that people call soft skills. Mm -hmm. I don't think we should ever refer to those school skills as soft skills, but rather the essential or the critical <laughs> yeah. skills. Um, I mentioned in my talk earlier, in my years of being in HR, rarely did people get terminated um, or bad reviews because they didn't technically understand. They were great electrical engineers. They were amazing finance professionals. Uh, it really boiled down to those things that we're calling soft, those critical skills, how they communicated with each other, how they related to other people, how they operate in a team setting. Um, I think when you can be certain that you're strong as an individual in those areas, um, you interview differently. Mm -hmm. um, you have had different results professionally, and you can speak to more interesting scenarios. You also have to though, I think, take the time to, con to contextualize what that organization you're trying to enter values and figure out a way to align what experiences you have to be able to spend time talking about and showcasing those things. Um, and that way you can better shape your story. Um, we all do a lot more than we're able to put on a resume. Um, the purpose of a resume is to highlight what we think that particular audience mm -hmm. uh, wants to see or wants to understand. The value of the interview is being able to put context and color behind that. So I think being able to identify um, uh, those critical skills, which have historically been called soft skills, as an emphasis, you have to have some basic technical aptitude. Uh, but beyond that, I think those are the two primary areas you want to focus on and being able to package and present those in a way that's relevant to the organization's mission. Yeah, one of the things that, uh, that I really liked about your talk today that I agree with that you're highlighting here and that I also hear from friends in the private sector and see play out with my students. You know, almost everyone that gets that position, at least at a lot of these levels, is technically qualified to do it. Yeah. Where they really end up getting tripped up is their relationships and their interactions in the workplace. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that you highlighted that I have been spending time working on in my own life is not being reactive. Yes. Right? When something happens, rather than jumping up and down and saying, why would someone question me? 
who do they think they are to tell me what to do, to pause and think a little bit more critically about, okay, maybe this is about something else. Maybe this isn't about me personally and whether or not I'm weak or not. Maybe it's just someone's trying to be helpful or maybe someone has identified some weakness that I don't have. Um, as a young professional here, I've run into this before, like, and I'm like, you can't tell me what to do. I'm my own boss. So I, I get thrown, you know, I'm going to die on this hill today because I'm so frustrated. How dare you question me, right? And as I realized some of the negative consequences of that, I tried to develop my own strategies for uh, when, in, when something's happening, rather than having these strong reactions, be able to have enough kind of presence of mind um, to be aware of what's going on in the situation rather than having my immediate response. Sure. And uh, one of the questions that you got today was how to do that better. Um, and just since we're talking about it, one of the things that's worked for me is uh, mindfulness. Mm-hmm. And so there's a decent amount of evidence on this as well, that if you can sit and be quiet and practice being present, that in those moments when you're likely to be triggered or likely to have a strong reaction, you, it's like a skill. It's just like your brain's just like a muscle, and you're just training it so that in those moments you can have that presence of mind and be aware. Because I can struggle with that. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about social media, since that's another interest sure. of yours, if you, if you don't mind. Um, we're trying out Facebook Live, which is still a relatively new phenomenon. I've done some of these with my own podcasts that I have, uh, and for some of our professional associations. But this is one way of trying to. In, better use social media. Any basic tips for us at Bush School Uncorked as we're trying to be engaging with our students more? Yeah, I think, um, you know, one of the things that I've learned through clients on the social media side, uh, specifically in higher ed, is that consistency is key. Um, Social media platforms offer so many different tools Mm -hmm. and so many different components and new things are rolling out all the time. Um, But if if you have a a target audience that you're wanting to engage and you want to see that engagement increase, one of the most uh, critical factors is to be very consistent. Um, Not suggesting that everything be uniformed, but what happens with social media is that people start to buy into it and they start going to certain pages looking for certain information. And in their minds, they start developing a a, a prescription or a, a specific subscription to a certain kind of content come from a certain source. And the way to get into the social media game as an organization or as a professor or as a department is to develop something that you do consistently. Not to say that you can't stray away from that on occasion, Mm -hmm. but guaranteeing your audience that you're going to be able to get, I don't know, uh, public policy statistics every single Thursday. Um, and that's why you have successful campaigns like Man Crush Monday, mm-hmm. uh, Throwback Thursday, mm-hmm. Women Crush Wednesday, all these different <clears throat> themes. They kind of come from the fact that people go looking for certain things, and that helps uh, with the engagement level. I think on the higher ed side, it's also important to understand uh, the audiences mm-hmm. that exist and why some of our students are on certain platforms. Uh, the current college student today, maybe not the graduate student, but the current college student today, for example, um, has a presence on Facebook, but their why is because they want grandma to see that they got good grades. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They want grandma to see the graduation pictures, yeah. right? That's how the gifts come in, right. aunts and uncles. But that's not really their social media platform. They're spending a lot of time on Snapchat uh, doing really cool and fun things there because in their minds, they think that's going to disappear. 
mm -hmm. uh, which we all know is not true. <laughs> uh, once it's digitized, it's permanent. But I think it's important on, on the faculty side is to be sensitive to all the different platforms and to be willing to try uh, to meet the students where they are. Because, you know, I was just reading, you know, we keep talking about millennials. They're not the audience anymore. It's this Generation Z. And it talked about how the millennials are, were, did, were how are they? They're, they're technology uh, dependent, and this next generation is technology reliant. Mm -hmm. uh, and they were talking about the difference, one being just a little more intimate. You were born at a time when the things that we view as new technology um, were already here. Yeah. And so they've gotten to a point where they have a certain level of expectation. And I think uh, we will all have to evolve in our communications platforms to be able to engage uh, that individual either as a student or as a as an employee. And yeah, one of the things that I've certainly noticed now that I, I still think of myself as 19, right? So I still think I'm I'm like I'm at the cutting edge. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? Still in my head. But I uh, my nieces and nephews have uh, dissolved me of that illusion by spending time with them. Sure. And and I think that's exactly true. We've been actually talking with the uh, a couple of students who help us with the podcast, and just over the past two weeks, we've been having this debate: which platform should we be on? And then the, one of the big things we talk, that we've talked about is if we're going to be on them, we need to be using them regularly yes. and in an organized way rather than you have a Twitter and you use it once a month or three days in a row and then don't yeah. use it again. That's not particularly helpful. Right. And so we've been trying to figure out, okay, what's our bandwidth? You know, because people are uh, helping out. And yeah. so uh, we don't want to put too much on any one student. Um, so we don't want to do you know five social media platforms when we really only have the capacity for two. Sure. And then there's this. So I you know Facebook started in what, 04, and I was starting. I started college in 05. So for me, we're using Facebook. Facebook's the one, right? It's the one that I use. It's the one that I'm comfortable with. And um, and so it's been it was been really hard for me to adapt to Instagram and to Snapchat. My wife is much better. I learned Snapchat from my wife, thankfully. I need to pity on me. Another thing um, that, I, that I didn't mention is um, along with consistency, and I see organizations do this a lot, is they'll create a platform. And they'll be consistent. Uh, they'll provide a lot of content, but they don't interact. Mm. They don't respond. Something as simple as acknowledging a comment with mm. a like yep. uh, means a lot. Uh, one, it tells the audience that. Um, their feedback is valuable, even though there's no real commentary on it. Uh, but people, you know, they say that all of us are, if you're on social media, you have some level of a mental addiction to it. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's some truth to that because we do often, you know, we'll post something and then minutes later we're going in to see if anything has happened. And so I think that people sort of want to get some kind of reaction. And I think when big organizations can react, um, it, it's valuable and can add value to engagement. But it can hurt us as organizations and or maybe as a faculty member uh, with a particular audience if you get something as simple as a question mm. and no one ever responds to it. I saw a post just this morning. Uh, there's a university that's got a new partnership uh, with a, another university and all that with current students. And a former student from the new university just wanted to know that it apply to all students. And there was absolutely no response. And then someone responded, well, probably not. And it just went into, into a very negative right. arena. And so now you've kind of lost control of this great announcement yeah. uh, because you didn't choose to engage your audience. So engagement is key. I know one of the things that uh, we get responses or questions from many nonprofit organizations and definitely here locally is where do you start? Because the number of requests that we get 
that are specific to we have no social media going on at our local nonprofit organization. And it's tough for them. Yeah. And the reason why they reach out to us is to ask if students can help. And a big part of our culture here at the Bush School is for uh, enriching students' experiment, uh, experiences while they're here. So um, any recommendations as to if a nonprofit organization is literally doing nothing, zero on the social media side, where can they start? Well, I'm in the middle of a series right now um, on my social media. It's called Start Somewhere. Okay. And uh, it, it's, it's really more for individuals who have these great ideas and want to be entrepreneurs. But I think the formula um, applies the same. I call it the, the five points, uh, the Simba uh, points. Uh, Simba in my native tongue means, means strength. Um, and the S stands for um, sacrifice. So if a nonprofit is limited resource, they need to figure out how they're going to carve out some time. Someone's going to have to carve out some time, even if it's one hour from your daily schedule or two hours from your weekly schedule as uh, the executive director, that you're going to devote that time. So find where you're going to make a sacrifice. The second is invest, and it's a similar one to sacrifice. Oftentimes when people hear invest, they think money. It's not always money. Okay. It can be the time. Um, it can be choosing to redeploy a resource in another direction to help gather content. Um, it can be investing that extra minute at the end of our talk. I said, hey, everyone, let's get a picture. Um, but just asking um, people to understand that they can be the information gatherer, the content developers. Uh, the M stands for mentoring. If I'm a nonprofit, there are very few nonprofits that are completely original, right? There are others who are kind of doing something similar mm -hmm. or close to it. So find someone who's doing it, um, call up their person and say, hey, can you share with us some thoughts as to how you all got started on your, sure. on your, um, on your um, overall social media platform? And then to be mentoring and benchmarking with an organization is sort of the same thing. Uh, maybe you don't pick up a phone and call, but you can just go look and see what are they doing, um, how is it successful. You know, I think one of the most successful branding components in social media with uh, nonprofits is the Susan G. Komen mm -hmm. Foundation. I mean, just go take a look at their story. I mean, the Huffington Post has written about it so many times. Just go and see what people have been doing that, that, that was successful. And the last one is uh, awareness, and that is taking a step back and taking a look at, okay, so we're out there. Is it working? Does it make sense? Is one like in every seven posts valuable to us? If not, is seven posts necessary? Okay. How do we reshift that? So I think that Simba effect that I'm using now for entrepreneurs applies in the same setting. Uh, but the key is that you start somewhere, even if it's just having the shell, your organization's logo, and sharing one simple quote that ties into whatever it is that you stand for every sure. day. And Pinterest will help you do that pretty much automatically. So, right. yeah. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, you know, one of the things that we encourage our organizations to do is find ways to work together uh, and with no disrespect to any one individual mission. If it's youth development, it's youth development. If it's cancer research, it's cancer research. Sure. Uh, find ways to partner together because that way, what we've seen is that you can leverage more dollars in doing so. Mm -hmm. But I never really thought about sharing uh, social media platforms for a cause, yeah. for the ecosystem of what's going on and how collectively there can be a larger impact. Definitely. Yeah, and there's all kinds of, at least with Facebook, you can. Uh, denote several people administrators. Yes. 
and you can have one person who's ultimately in charge, uh, like the creator, I forget what the term for it is right now. Sure. So you can have several people who have different uh, responsibilities yeah. where they can post certain things or have certain kind of uh, responsibilities associated with it. Yeah. So uh, that, that's a helpful Amazing. one. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. At, least really with the, uh, at least with Facebook it is. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Well, um, let's see. We talked a little bit about relationships when you were talking yeah, today. And one of the things, one of your first quotes was from uh, Zig Ziglar, and it, tr it triggered in me a, a quote from when I was a little boy at my elementary school. And when I was little, I, uh, this will probably not surprise anyone at this point, <laughs> but I would write down quotes. I was writing down things that I thought were important uh, at like 10, and then I would read back over the, the best quotes and try to remember to impart those lessons in my life. So I was that 10 year old. You were <laughs> <laughs> no, right, no. Uh, I was writing down, visiting the word. I still have one uh, spiral bound notebook where I wrote some wow. But I had a coach who told me something um, that was if you want to get to where you want to go, the only way you can do that is by helping other people get where they want to go. Absolutely. And I have been, so I'm a first-generation college kid. I grew up in rural Northwest Georgia. Uh, wonderful family, wonderful community. It was a very insular community. Yeah. And so trying to get from there to Texas A&M as a professor, I was always lost. Um, did, I mean, I went to UGA. UGA was great, but it's such a large university that if you didn't go seek the help, there, it wasn't easy to find it, at least for me as a first-generation student. And so one of the things that I've noticed in my own life that, is, that seems to be very true of what you said is that if you take the time to help others and genuinely invest in them, take a sincere interest in what they're doing and try to help them along, it does seem to be one of the most foolproof ways uh, or the most likely ways of helping you get where you would, uh, where you would like to go. So I think that's spot on. Can yeah. I have a question for you? Sure. So we're talking a little bit earlier about differences in work in different types of environments, private, nonprofit, higher ed. You come from the nonprofit world. You've been dealing with us here for almost <laughs> two years now. <laughs> right. Um, uh, any uh, reflections you might offer that uh, either for about transferable skills, things that you found were transferable from nonprofit role, or some things that, as you look back, were really kind of clear for needing to be done in the nonprofit, but is a little different now that you're here with us at the university. Well, I mean, I've thought about it several times. Uh, you know, I worked for Big Brothers Big Sisters for 12 years, uh, left as the executive of the organization right over in Austin, and things are a bit different. In nonprofits, my experience was every day is urgent. Mm -hmm. So uh, one of the points that was made a little earlier about versus a corporate environment, uh, I mean, the level of urgency when you're working on behalf of people in some community is, a, is really truly a daily grind. And uh, in an academic environment, I think to your point, was certainly well taken because, you know, we talk about things on maybe we can do it next year or in a couple of years. So, you, you know, that part, uh, quite honestly, uh, I appreciate it. It gives you definitely more time for personal development. And as a, you know, one with the leadership studies background, I look at the leadership literature quite a bit. And uh, being, you know, reflective on decisions that you made and what you would have done different. Or, um, 
what you would like to do more of. Uh, all of that seems to be extremely important, and I think that crosses over into the nonprofit sector, the corporate sector, and also into uh, academia as well. Uh, one thing to you know, you all's point, uh, just something that I read many years ago, it was talking about uh, the role of nonprofit executives and would nonprofit executives transition well into corporate environments, or would corporate leaders transition well? into nonprofit, say, higher ed uh, environments. And quite honestly, the, the literature is a, a bit mixed, but one point always stood out to me, which I think about even still to this day, and that is uh, nonprofit leaders tend to be more legislative in their approach. So uh, on a daily basis, they're really looking at uh, building consensus toward uh, some uh, goal. And in this case, uh, the study spoke about more nonprofit executives being able to transition well into corporate environments uh, versus uh, top-down for-profit environments being able to transition well into nonprofit organizations where really, as a leader, you're more in the center because you have a board above you and your staff below you. So I always thought, uh, regardless of whatever kind of skill that is, whether hard or soft, uh, it was definitely uh, meaningful. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's good. And I, I would say, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because my, um, you know, we talked about accountability and being mm -hmm. able to look back and, and see when you owned it, didn't own. I think, you know, one of my biggest struggles and maybe limitations when I transitioned from corporate uh, into higher ed was um, in, in corporate because we were more aggressive with the performance management system. Mm -hmm. Um, I was accustomed to holding people accountable, right? And so in, in higher ed, um, <laughs> at, at the institution that I worked at, we, we did performance management, right. but we didn't have hard goals. Right. Um, and, you know, so when I was accustomed to being able to sort of give the direct feedback and keep moving, uh, but I had to be a little bit more diplomatic, and I probably should have done it sooner than later. <laughs> so I might still be that right. But you had to be a little bit more diplomatic um, and you had to be sensitive to, to uh, this thing called legacy and tradition mm -hmm. because of who the person was. Mm -hmm. um, just because the person is not great at their job, but you've got to understand that this person's tied to XYZ donor or the part of this family or has been part of this community since. And I had to really make a shift. I don't think I made the shift entirely, um, but it was a real struggle because the culture was very different. And I think that that cultural shift um, is one that someone would really need to spend a lot of time uh, doing and understanding before making making that transition. It's honestly one of the uh, uh, worst experiences I've ever had. I mentioned being with Big Brothers Big Sisters over in Austin. Uh, literally what happened in that case, I went to that organization from the national office. So we're talking early 2000s. I started with the organization in the mid-90s. And when I was, was at the national organization, we talked so much about performance management and performance metrics. What do we track? And that was so not the culture of our organization at the time as a nonprofit. But everything that was coming out from a research standpoint said, we have to professionalize as nonprofits. We need to focus on metrics and data to make those decisions that will lead us into the future. And quite honestly, you know, looking back now, uh, it's, it's really mixed in terms of the results where uh, so many social workers transition out of the nonprofit industry based on it becoming too 
too much like uh, for-profit management environments. Yeah. So I remember during that period where we lost several folks, but we definitely had to come back a little bit. And that's not to say that many of our best nonprofit organizations rely on data today, but there certainly has to be some balance there uh, uh, with mission-based work. Absolutely. Yeah, this is something that uh, I've actually studied, believe mm -hmm. it or not. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that we learn about folks that work in uh, public sector organizations and nonprofits as opposed to private is they are very much more, this is a surprise, but they are very much more mission-driven, right? They're very much more, yeah. <laughs> well, on average they are, on average they seem to be. And one of the things we found globally in some work I looked at uh, with a couple co-authors was that people that work in government and in uh, nonprofit uh, nonprofits uh, do say, do report that they are more motivated to serve others. That's part of how they see their identity. That's part of how they view their positions. And so I think this is an interesting, so I think about this with academia because now I've been in academia in some shape for 14 years. So how long does the time go? Uh, but you know, we have these initiatives uh, at the at Texas A&M, for example, our syllabi have to have certain objectives and we have to have measurable ways that we achieve those objectives. Professors uh, get uh, ratings from their students at the end of every semester. Right. Texas A&M right now is doing this, this fairly comprehensive measuring of schools and departments on a bunch of metrics. And the idea is that you, you should be doing well on each of those metrics. They do it kind of like a circle and you know, whether your organization compares to others. And so I have really mixed thoughts about this too because I study management and there's certainly room for, uh, we clearly need like uh, accountability for yeah. actions and behavior, mm -hmm. accountability for performance. We need a mission. We need some ways of assessing that mission. But I, I do retain a little bit of old school academia mindset with this where it's also like, but you know, halfway through the semester, if something important is going on and I'm the expert, maybe I should be teaching them what I think they need to hear as the expert rather than what the syllabus says I should be teaching them, right? Yeah. Which is some of my own problems with authority. <laughs> but also, it's like, what is, you know, to your point, uh, the business world has a balance uh, and it varies across different businesses. Absolutely. Uh, nonprofits have to find a balance and it differs by nonprofits and the same thing within universities and, and I think it, it requires a real delicate balance of we don't want uh, you know what we call a you know, dead weight you don't right. want someone that's quit uh, quit contributing to your organization without any tools to either encourage them or have them exit sure. but you also don't want to micromanage so much that professors don't get to do the thing they're good at which is share their creative knowledge so I think it uh, brings up some really interesting kind of concerns and trade-offs. And I think on the academia piece, you have to look at the fact that academia has two sides, right? There's the administrative or the staff side, and then there's the faculty side, which mm -hmm. I would argue, and just as a benefic a, a person who's benefited from that um, that that straying away, let the subject matter expert do what he or she does. Um, I think there's there's a requirement for greater freedom in that space because of what your ultimate goal is. Um, whereas the business operations mm -hmm. side of things maybe can mirror more so um, that point. corporate standards. So. It's a really point that the, the context not only matters by organization, but even within tasks within so, the organization. Yeah. So I'm trying to be cognizant of time. So I just gave an hour talk to our students, which we are very thankful for. Thank you so much. And then has now spent another 35 minutes being live reported with, uh, with us. So um, 
What I would like to do though is give you an opportunity to mention any social media that you're active on or anywhere where the listeners could follow along to some of the work you're doing. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, the easiest way uh, to stay connected to me is, and we'll put my name, I'm sure, mm -hmm. but it's at Zilla Fluker mm -hmm. on Instagram, um, on LinkedIn, on Twitter, and on Facebook. So that's the easiest way. And then, of course, my website is activateelevate.org. Uh, which we can put in there as well. So yep, happy to happy to post all that. And this will be uh, for those that are seeing us on Facebook Live. You've now seen it on Facebook Live. We're also going to be taking the audio and publishing it on our Bush School Uncorked podcast, where we will for sure have all of the extra details for how you how they can stay in touch with you. Thank you so much for taking no, the time thank today. You. Thank you so much. We yes. really